Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining us today is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. Another day in paradise. Another day in paradise. Also joining us in paradise today is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. A little sad that Pride Month is over. A little deflated. But you know what? July is my birthday month, so I'll be right back on top in no time. Yeah, more fun stuff right around the corner. So on this week's show, we are going to recap last week's two nights of debating between the Democratic candidates for president. And then last week, the Supreme Court issued two important rulings in cases regarding political power in our democracy. The court, at least temporarily, prevented a citizenship question from being added to the census. And the court also refused to step in to set any legal standard limiting partisan gerrymandering of election districts. So we're going to talk about these two rulings and their impact on Georgia politics in the 2020 elections. Uh, But let's start here with the debate. So last week, 20 candidates took the stage for the first debate among Democrats seeking to become the party's nominee to take on Donald Trump next year. So let's talk about how this race is shaping up and what the direction of the party at the national level means for Georgia candidates. Uh, But first, I want to start with just each of your initial reactions to the debate after you got through watching uh, two nights of these candidates go at each other, uh, what did you think about how all this went down? Uh, Megan, what did you think? So I really, okay, I'm just going to get on my normal soapbox. Anytime there's a debate, you will probably hear me say this every time we ever talk about a debate. The interrupting drives me absolutely bonkers. I really wish from like a sound... And I understand. I understand what it is for, right? Like, not every candidate asks the same questions. Not every candidate is given the same amount of airtime. I get it. But I wish there were, like, a button. I wish someone had to acknowledge someone before chiming in. Like, I wish a few other things because, A, my ADHD cannot handle voices coming from what felt like 500 directions. And, B, it's just plain rude and it violates the rules of the debate. And if you're going to be in a debate, then presumably – Presumably, you've agreed to the rules, so I just don't understand. I did hear, um, and I just heard this uh, secondhand, so this may or may not be fake news, but I did hear Andrew Yang complained because he was very quiet in the debate on the second night when he was there, and he complained that his microphone was turned off uh, because Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang uh, like notoriously curses a lot, and I guess they didn't want to leave his mic on on live TV. And so he attributed that as to why he was so quiet, which maybe is why he wasn't the one doing the interrupting. I, d- I doubt that's true, because if they were going to mute anybody, it would have been Marianne Williamson. Like, let's be honest. <laughs> oh, my God. Let, let's get into her later. So if that's true about Yang, then that's messed up because, like, honestly, equal playing field and all that, like, that should be allowed. However, I'm not a proponent of the playing field be just like a free for all with open mics. Like... Plus, I really like Rachel Maddow. I want to be able to hear her. That's just me. So anyway, that said, I definitely had some favorites and not favorites throughout um, the two debate nights, but I'm sure we'll get into that in just a minute. Yeah, overall, I I think uh, the debates were pretty good. They're actually quite substantive. Uh, I was actually a really big fan of the raise your hand questions. I thought that was really good at like not creating artificial debate, but sort of just like trying to like there's a lot of people where where is everybody (laughs) like like i feel and i feel like that was always the tone of those questions and i feel like that was really helpful because um there were some questions i was kind of like surprised by who raised their hands and who didn't um so i thought all in all really substantive uh really a lot of ground was covered and i think the most important thing which was my test of whether these debates were successful or not was not determining who should be our next president but determining without a like doubt in my mind who should not be on that stage and who definitely (laughs) should not be president and like we definitely called like at least like four six people who we just like know now nope you should not be president you should go home well let's uh start with some of the winners and losers here and and we can start with the losers luke who are the people that you would vote off the island after that debate I I would vote. Uh, oh my God, Eric Swalwell. 
he he's like a kindle like a burned kindle from the 90s it's like terrifying <laughs> like just how strange he was because he just like some consultant like made him in a lab and it's just very obvious and very Was he strange. the one with the really oddly flat, straight eyebrows? You mean the one that looks like a burnt Ken doll? Yes. The yeah. one that's like Joe Biden, you should pass the torch. Which like saying that once, good line, but like he just like tried to milk it a lot and it just it just didn't work. So like Swalwell's definitely there. Uh Marianne Williamson, like I know my life would be more entertaining if she didn't go, but she she needs to. <laughs> I think I think Tim Ryan, like just just please just go back to Ohio. Do do your Ohio thing. It's been working out for you. Just just keep doing that. I, you know I think those are like the undeniable ones. Uh, John Delaney, like I kind of want to vote him off the island, but he's also like the only one saying the things he's saying, and so there's an argument for him staying because of that. But I don't know. Like maybe not. So for me, it was the first one off the island is Gabbard. I don't quite understand what having a gay squad mate means. It, I imagine that the implication she meant to say was something along the lines of like, you know, there's a super tight bond and like there were gay people in my squad and I trust them implicitly. Only she didn't really say that. She just kind of mentioned that they were there. So is that like having a black friend? I, I don't really know. Um, she tried so hard to get the letters right, LGBTQ, all that good stuff. But I just don't trust her change of her quote unquote change of heart. Um, who else should go off the island? Absolutely, Williamson, Luke. I 100% agree with you. I kind of want her to stay on for one more debate, just for like entertainment value. But like, as far as being an actual viable nominee, oh hell no. Um, and then who else do I want off the island? Um, I think Biden's time is over. I like him as VP, and I like what he offers the debate stage. But I kind of wish that he would fade out quicker than he probably will, um, because I just think that the Democratic Party has moved on from what he can offer. So those are my top three, I suppose. Um, so let's kind of get into here maybe one of the big moments, Megan, that you might think that Biden really his time might be up. Um, the, probably the most memorable exchange in this debate was between uh, former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris over comments that Biden made praising the civility of his relationship with segregationist senators in the early 1970s. One of these was uh, former Georgia Senator Herman Talmadge. Uh, let's listen to audio of that exchange. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. Mm -hmm. But I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. It's a mischaracterization of my position across the board. I did not praise racist. That is not true, number one. Number two, if we want to have this campaign litigated on who supports civil rights and whether I did or not, I'm happy to do that. I was a public defender. I didn't become a prosecutor. I came out and I left a good law firm to become a public defender. When in fact, when in fact, when in fact my city was in flames because of the, the uh, assassination of Dr. King. In terms of busing, the busing, I never, you would have been able to go to school the same exact way because it was a local decision made by your city council. That's fine. That's one of the things I argued for. I ran because of civil rights. I continue to think we have to make fundamental changes in civil rights. And those civil rights, by the way, include not just only African-Americans, but the LGBT community. But they, Vice President Biden, do you agree today, do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then. No, Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education, 
That's what I oppose. Well, I there did was not a failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. I was part of the second the, class to integrate Berkeley, the, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. Because your city council made that decision. It was a so local decision. So that's where the federal government must step the, in. The that's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass the Equality Act. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because that's there right. are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of I all people. I supported the okay, ERA from the very beginning when Vice I ran President Biden, the 30 seconds, because I want to bring you know, other people into this. I supported I the ERA from the very beginning. I'm the guy that extended the Voting Rights Act for 25 years. We got to the place where we got 98 out of 98 votes in the United States Senate doing it. I've also argued very strongly that we, in fact, deal with the notion of denying people access to the ballot box. I agree that everybody, once they, in fact, Anyway, my time's up. I'm sorry. So what did y'all think of this exchange between Biden and Harris? Do you think, do you agree with most of the the pundits and the uh, the journalists that Harris really got the best of Biden in this exchange? Yes, I think she did. I think that she needed to. And I, as I said a little while ago in the podcast, I really do think that Biden's time um, representing the Democratic Party is over. I think the party's moving on. Um, I think that you know, my shtick on this show is always diversity and inclusion. And I think that there are certain people who are going to really be able to embrace that and make it a part of the DNA of the party. And there are people who will not. And I think that we should go with the people who will. And for me, that's Harris. So I, I, I loved what she said to him. It, it was uncomfortable. Absolutely. But I'm glad you said it. I'm glad this exchange happened. I'm glad that she called him out. I think it also provides a, like a, a warning sign for uh, Harris's campaign, though. Um, not for the content; it's just how it happened. Because I remember like watching that as it was happening and thinking, like, "Wow, that's like a deeply personal thing for her. This is, you know, some, you know, like real thing that like happened to her and affected her life." And then, like, almost instantly on Instagram, there was a the picture of her as a little girl saying that girl was me. And I'm like, okay, like, that's that's some good branding and good social media that, like, they got that out so fast. Like, that's pretty cool. And then, like, the next day, they had a t-shirt. And so, it's just, like, it feels so forced when at first it felt very authentic and in sort of the same well that like Swalwell is so obviously heavily consulted and that that's why he says the things that he says and says them the way he says them. Harris seems like she might have that problem as well. She's just a really, really good performer when the lights are on and she can sell those things in a way that like someone like Swalwell can't. And so I would just be worried about like the off, authenticity factor if this is a recurring problem you know because i mean this was something in the debate like going into it like it was pretty obvious as she mentioned being the only minority person on that stage i'm gonna pose a i'm posing a question though so don't we want a candidate that's actually going to listen to their consultants slash advisors because right now we've got a president who doesn't and I understand what you're saying, like it lacks authenticity, but I feel like what if it came from an authentic place, she brought it up and she just had a lot of coaching and steering and help getting that message out, or she had a lot of input on that message to make sure it was right. Don't we need a president that does that? Well, I do think it was premeditated. I mean, this is a position that Joe Biden took in the 1970s, so she had plenty of time to uh, to work this attack out. And I, I think just like on what you're saying, Luke, about the, like the T-shirt and stuff, I think that's just like, I don't know, pretty common branding. I mean, it's like Elizabeth Warren's... Um, nevertheless, she persisted. I am so uh, happy name. you mentioned that because that's exactly where I was about to go. That, like, came out, like, a week or so after that happened, like, once they realized that this was a thing, you know? And so it just, I don't know, it just feels so staged to me, and it feels very phony. And I, I guess my problem with that, and the reason why I bring it up with Kamala Harris specifically, is, like, there's some candidates, and we've talked about this before, where, like, there's a really clear reason why they are running to be president. Like, I know 
why Joe Biden wants to be president. I know why Elizabeth Warren wants to be president. I know why Pete Buttigieg wants to be president. But like Harris is still in that category for me to like, I don't really know why she wants to be president besides I think I should be president. <laughs> I think I would do a good job. You know, like I don't know what she wants to do as president. She just wants to be president and is saying, I think I'm the best person to do it. But like, I don't know the why. And so the authenticity thing is more worrisome for me from her because I don't know why. Like, you know, that that's that's where I'm coming from with her. That's fair. I think to some extent her challenge in terms of the why is she doesn't have the lifelong story that is a good political tool for her at this point. So she gets criticized from the left for having been a prosecutor um, and having been one at a time prior to the real emergence of criminal justice reform as a prominent issue among liberals. And so she was much more of a tough on crime prosecutor. She gets criticized a little bit from the left for when she was attorney general of California and not coming down harder on uh, mortgage lenders in the the wake of the financial crisis. Um, I mean, I, I think I, that I mean, there I hear are that, ways. but Elizabeth Warren was a Republican <laughs> until 1996. Uh, yeah. Well, 1996 was a long time ago now. Um, I think, though, I, I think she's like beginning to develop a a brand a little bit in terms of how like her brand to me coming out of this debate was she would be probably hands down. She would be the best person rhetorically to take on Donald Trump. She would be the one best position to really light him on fire during the debate. Now, whether or not that is, you know, that's a sort of a separate skill than being the president of the United States and for hopefully for whoever the Democrat is that hopefully becomes the next president, Donald Trump may quickly become a memory or an afterthought. The thing, though, to kind of flip this a little bit and talk a little bit about Biden is I just don't understand why Biden at 70 whatever years of age cannot apologize for positions he had 30 years ago. To me, it would cost him politically, it would cost him absolutely nothing to have taken the response that Kamala gave in the debate and to say, you know, you're right. What you said about busing and how that impacted you, you know, I acknowledge that I believe that. And then when Kamala Harris gave him an out to say, do you still believe that? To not turn around and make a states' rights argument about it, like, I mean, Kyle, have you have you ever met Joe Biden or seen him on TV? Like, this is this is a very stubborn man, and the I mean, you know, there's there's two elements to this. One, I think Biden is probably one of those people that we can easily put in the category that law like that learned the wrong things from Donald Trump winning, because Donald Trump for apologizes for nothing he doubles down on everything and so there's that aspect of it but i mean i think the reason why that joe biden did not renounce this position is because one joe biden thinks joe biden is right (laughs) and you know like he just he thinks he did the right thing and in the context of the 1970s seeing the options he had on the table he probably just could not convincingly say he doesn't think that was the right thing to do in the 1970s and you know 80s like i think that's the problem now obviously in retrospect we can look back and say that yeah that's bad and it had a lot of bad impacts on people but it's it's hard for him to say that because he is aware and if you know the history of the time he feels like by working with these people that he prevented the country from getting to the rancorous spot that we ended up in now earlier, which, you know, mixed record of success, mixed, uh, you know, bragging point, but it is a point at least. And that's the point he's trying to make, I think. Well, this is also goes to my argument, though, that Biden is no longer representative of the party because what what he is doing is a prime example of what the cis white men in our leadership are allowed to get away with. They're just allowed to be like, I'm right and I'm right. You know, what are you going to do about it? I'm right and I'm going to stick to it. I'm right. I'm not going to admit that I'm wrong. And that time is over. We need people who are going to be able to not only admit when they're wrong, but actually change with the times and to change and to 
to match what the party actually wants. And Biden cannot freaking do it. Let's transition here to immigration. And and there were two, I think, really key moments, in my view, about the issue of immigration. Just as backstop to this, you know, whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be, Trump is going to make immigration a central issue to this campaign. And so that's why I thought it was interesting that on the first night, Julian Castro hit Beto O'Rourke over this relatively obscure immigration or provision in immigration law. It's called Section 1325. But basically what the provision is, it is it makes it makes unauthorized crossing of the border a uh, a criminal offense. And when the Trump administration decided to start prosecuting that criminal offense, they used that as the precursor to separating families. Because when, uh, just like for an American parent, when someone is jailed for violating a federal law, they can't be detained with their children. And this is how families got separated. Castro hit O'Rourke for not wanting to repeal that provision and only make unauthorized border crossing a a civil offense rather than a criminal offense. Um, And they got into this big back and forth where most of the pundits agreed that Castro won that exchange. The other piece of immigration news out of this debate was that on the second night, all of the candidates raised their hands to say that their health care plans would provide access to coverage for undocumented immigrants. And uh, for those of you who've been following politics for a long time, this is the source of a South Carolina congressman yelling, you lie at Obama during a 2010 address to Congress when Obama was trying to make the case that his reforms in the Affordable Care Act would not benefit undocumented immigrants. Do y'all think that this exchange that really pushed the party further to the left on immigration than it's been in the Trump era, for much further left than it's been in the Obama era, is there any reason for Democrats not to be going down that road? And and how do you sort of approach that question with like Georgia politics in mind? To be honest, I don't really know what this question means <laughs> effectively. <laughs> like to be honest, like I really don't. Because if you're in a single payer like concept, you're not really paying for things on the front end you're paying for them on the back end so i i guess it, it that, that honestly that's that's my problem with this question because i don't know what's what's asking like if there's a situation where an undocumented immigrant goes to the hospital because like they fell out of a tree and broke their arm would they not help them if the answer to that question was no, or is this a situation where like someone has a cold and they go to the doctor, they have to pay for it if they're undocumented versus if they're a citizen, they don't. So I kind of feel like it's, it's a good, it's a good like headline question, but I don't think in that context, anyone gave an honest answer to it because like the, they don't have enough time to flesh it out. So like in the same way that like, Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand have signed on and are co-signers to Bernie's plan. They actually don't want Bernie's plan (laughs) because they don't want to get rid of private insurance and Bernie's plan gets rid of private insurance. So I'm not really sure what they're debating because I think if you pressed every candidate individually on why did you raise your hand? That was an example that people would give different answers on. Well, I guess to... So within the policy, it would mean that either if you were doing Medicare for all, undocumented immigrants would qualify for Medicare for all. If you did something short of that, like additional tax credits or expanded Medicaid or whatever healthcare program is out there, because they all raise their hands, even though they have different healthcare ideas, the idea would be that whatever provisions were available for citizens would also be available for undocumented immigrants. But I think the broader question here, though, is... Democrats, in both of these examples, Democrats are swinging much in the direction of being welcoming and open and open to undocumented immigrants in a way that Trump has driven the party further to the right as being closed off and hostile to immigrants. So I guess it's it's more a question politically of positioning yourself. Do you think it's good that the party position themselves to be further to the left and opening or is there ground there in the middle that they should be going after of people who are maybe not hostile to immigrants, but maybe believe that you should uh, 
you know, not legalize everybody that is here. The people who would take an immigration question and say, well, they should go to the back of the line. They should learn English. That used to be kind of the middle ground in this discussion, but Democrats are not there right now. I think you can argue this in two different ways. There's definitely an argument to be made for figuring out what the middle ground is in order to get the swing voters who may be a little bit more conservative on the immigration standpoint and on the standpoint of whether healthcare is or is not a human right. And so if you can figure out how to strike that balance and not violate rights, or at least violate the perceived rights that people on the progressive left perceive every human being having, then that's where you want to be. But honestly, I'm not like, I don't know enough about this to even know if that point exists. And I think that's the entire problem, right? And it also brings up the argument that you can't really be a fiscal conservative, but a social liberal, because those two things cancel each other out. And that's exactly what this question is trying to find. It's trying to figure out if you can do both. And I think the answer is no, probably not. So then that brings me to the other argument, which is, do you believe that healthcare is a human right, regardless of immigration status, regardless of any kind of status, just if a person is alive and is human, they get healthcare. And the progressive left does believe that. So then that's your argument for, you know, going ahead with every anything that you can full stop as far as allowing immigration and allowing healthcare for all. Um, so I don't think we have the information to make the argument. I don't know that we ever will. I think that we are just going to have to, someone is going to have to create a plan that we can kind of live with. And I don't know what that is. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking of like how Teresa Tomlinson, if she's the Democratic nominee for Senate, would approach this question. Um, you know, Purdue in 2014 was tying the migrant crisis of 2014 uh, to terrorists entering the country through a porous border. This was before the Trump era, just barely, but before the Trump era. And when um, Purdue and Michelle Nunn were going back and forth over immigration in the 2014 race, Michelle Nunn had the strategy of tying herself to the Chamber of Commerce, to Marco Rubio, to John McCain, the sort of core conservative side of a failed bipartisan immigration compromise. But I just can't imagine after the 2018 election and after Stacey Abrams taking the approach of being sort of an unabashed progressive, that Teresa Tomlinson would then sort of return to the Michelle Nunn strategy. But Purdue, like Trump, has made immigration one of the important issues of his uh, political career and his, his brand. And so I do think this is a place where it's going to be a tough one for, for Tomlinson to square here. But uh, this could be one where Purdue tries to drive a wedge between uh, Tomlinson and, and more moderate voters. Um, the one other little piece of information to add to this is that there was a poll from CNN that came out today. We're recording on Monday, and it came out today showing that only 38% of respondents to the poll supported extending a government health care plan to undocumented immigrants, and, and 59% were opposed. The numbers were much better among Democratic voters in that poll. Uh, but broadly, it's a relatively unpopular proposal, uh, which is different than a lot of the other sort of primary issues that Democrats are running on. Let's talk a little bit about Mayor Pete and his response. So if you are a little bit behind on the news on Mayor Pete, he is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and there was a shooting uh, of a police officer shot a person who was reportedly breaking into cars in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, the community was outraged by this shooting. There were demonstrations in front of the mayor's office. Mayor Pete uh, dropped off the campaign trail for a few days to attend town halls and try to engage with this community. Uh, but during this debate, he got asked why the things that he had done in South Bend had not been successful and, and, and how he basically got asked how he was managing this crisis. And he was really honest. He said that he just couldn't, when he was asked about diversifying the police force, he said he just couldn't get it done. Um, and he basically admitted failure on the debate stage. And, and he said that he could go through this list of things that the community had tried to do, but that none of that stopped the shooting. None of this saved Eric Logan's life and that, he has to look at Eric Logan's mother and live with that fact 
that his policies could not save her son's life. What did y'all make of how Mayor Pete approaches this issue on the debate stage? I mean, it was the exact opposite of what Joe Biden did, and I think it worked a lot better. Agreed. Do you think that this is something, should we see more of our politicians, particularly like presidential candidates, apologizing and and admitting defeat on something like this? I think like with anything, it's about striking the balance. You know, if there's anything that I've learned about being a woman in the workplace, you can definitely apologize too much. Um, And when you apologize, it needs to be sincere. Otherwise, you might as well not apologize. You're just shooting yourself in the foot. So I think that if a political candidate is or, or heck, the president is truly does feel like they messed up, um, then, yeah, it's worth figuring out what an apology would would do. But I do think that the world we live in is not set up for apologies all the time. And I also think that this would have played very differently had Warren or Harris made the same apology. Another big issue in this debate that caught my eye was this question of Mitch McConnell. So on the first night, Chuck Todd asked Elizabeth Warren if she had a plan to deal with McConnell. And her response basically was that if Democrats don't win the Senate, you would need pressure from outside of Congress and leadership from inside of Congress to make Congress reflect the will of the people. Uh, Booker got a chance at this question, too, and he talked about passing the First Step Act, this criminal justice reform bill that Trump signed. But I think I I read a piece by Ezra Klein that we'll link to in the show notes that was he was basically underwhelmed with Democrats response on this. How do y'all think that Democrats should respond to the possibility that they could win the White House and hold the House, but they would have to deal with a Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, in 2021. I think you take it one day at a time, Kyle. I think you do everything you can to win the White House, win, you know, keep the House, and attempt to win the Senate. And if you if you don't, you have to cross that bridge when you get there. Because I mean, there's no idea. Like, there's no honest answer I could give you that was not just pure speculation of what the political climate of January 2021 is going to be when. You know, we either reinaugurate Donald Trump or we, you know, hopefully bringing a Democratic president. So, you know, Mitch McConnell is going to be there either way, probably. You know, he could he could die. <laughs> he could get, you know, he's, he's up there in age. Uh, he could uh, get beat in his Senate race because he is up in 2020. Uh, but that's unlikely uh, either by a Democrat or a Republican. So he's probably going to be there and he's probably going to be the leader, either majority or minority. So he's going to be a factor either way. And I think, you know, uh, learn from President Obama and, you know, learn that Mitch McConnell is, is going to try to screw you over no matter where he is and, you know, be prepared for that and come out swinging. I mean, I think I think the, the thing that you do either way is, you know, you you never stop the work of engaging the American people in your agenda and you just keep the pressure on because, Mitch McConnell is a human being that deals with political capital just like anybody else. And if the public pressure is high enough, like he, he caves, like he's, he doesn't want to lose his majority. And if you make it clear that the cost for him will be a lot higher than he wants it to be, then just like any other politician, he will eventually cave. And so, you know, if, if you are a person that can build up a uh, organization that can beat Donald Trump, an incumbent president, which is very hard to do, then I would hope that you would also have the momentum and organization and vision to sustain that into your presidency. And I don't, you know, and that's a project a lot of people say that uh, you know Obama tried to do and failed, but I don't really know how hard he tried to do that because I don't really feel like, in retrospect, there wasn't as much effort placed in that that even the team said they did um one other issue here just to kind of wrap up our discussion of the debate um so on the day after the debate atlanta mayor keisha lance bottoms endorsed biden's presidential campaign Uh, but interestingly in reacting to the debate nakima williams a state senator and the leader of the state democratic party um she said she wrote on her facebook page that vice president biden was and is wrong about the issue of busing and that 
Williams and Biden have a fundamental difference in belief on that issue. And she said, as a black woman in the South leading a state Democratic Party, I will make sure our party recognizes all the little Kamala's and Nakima's out there that deserve someone and a party to fight for them. This is a pretty big gap between the mayor of Atlanta and the leader of the state Democratic Party. What did you make of uh, Lance Bottoms' endorsement and uh, Williams feeling very differently? I 100% agreed with Williams and 100% disagreed with Bottoms. I mean, that's that's already clear from the things I've already said this episode. But I do think it's concerning. And I think that this is where we as Democrats get a, get ourselves into hot water, right? There's been this this movement within the party and also movement outside of the party that judges the party saying, oh, well, you guys eat your own. You guys can't come together. And my answer to this has been, obviously, I have opinions, but I hedge almost everything I say with, but whoever the nominee is, I will vote for them. And I think that coming out this early with an endorsement is really sticky. I mean, there's still 20 some odd candidates in the field right now. We obviously know that some of them aren't going to make it through. But endorsing someone at this stage that's already made a couple of major missteps, such as saying, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to have Abrams as my VP, again, affecting Georgia and again, assuming things about a woman of color wanting to be his VP. um, I think that Bottoms' decision to go ahead and give an endorsement was it was a little premature. To, To be fair. Joe Biden, the man, did not say that he was going to make Abrams his VP. That was something that people in his team supposedly leaked. That we know of. He personally didn't say it. Either way, it still did come from his his team, so it was discussed. Yeah, I mean, well, you discuss a lot of things on a campaign, so I, I, I don't think that is something to condemn, because like, I feel like if it was coming from someone else, we would not even list it as a concern. Uh, and we would praise them for, you know, picking someone of such, such you know, uh, energy and ideas. So, it, you know, that that that's my first thought on that. It, I think it's strange for anyone to endorse anyone this early, to be honest. The only people that I think makes 100% sense for uh, people to endorse right now is if you have a candidate from your state running. You just, you know, that's just kind of what you do. If you generally agree with them, uh, that you know, that's just... You know, you usually have personal relationships with those people and you really know what they think and they're like. And so I I understand those folks that have made that decision. Ultimately, I don't think this is going to matter that much uh, in in the state. I think it's going to, you know, it 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 caused some tense press releases. But besides that, I I don't see this being a big fight just because there are so many candidates. Uh, And, you know, as uh, another Georgia elected Shogus. John Lewis uh, was a happy endorser of Hillary Clinton for a long time in 2007 and 2008. Uh, So uh, people can change their endorsements uh, because, you know, uh, John Lewis did eventually uh, switch to the Obama camp. So uh, this is not graved in stone. This is a temporary uh, support that I think, as we've discussed, uh, Joe Biden is not doing great and so there's a great chance that he will not be the nominee and i'm sure bottoms will you know uh move eventually um so yeah luke as you mentioned there there's some polling out today that kind of backs up uh the fact that biden did not do well so in a cnn poll uh, biden has dropped 10 points to leading the field with only 22 percent of the vote in the last poll he is followed by harris at 17 warren at 15 sanders at 14 and Buttigieg at four a morning consult poll was similar had biden at 33 sanders at 19 so a little higher in morning consult than in cnn Harris, Warren, and Buttigieg rounding out the top five, probably the five, the core of the five, who at least now are the most competitive for the race. But this reminds me that we haven't really talked about Elizabeth Warren in this debate. I thought that Warren kind of just did what she needed to do. You know, I think Harris had the breakout moment, but I think Warren, because of the structure of having her on the first night with uh, everyone else in the field being relatively low pollers, I think that she began the debate on the first night by talking about her message of structural change and 
uh, big changes in the economy that are really geared at making the economy work for working people as opposed to corporations. And she had that populist message that you've heard on the trail. Um, But it was noted that she kind of dropped off in the second half of the debate. What did y'all think of her performance? And do you think that she did what she needed to do in this debate? I liked her for the most part. I found her to be a little flat, like you've kind of already implied, like she did what she needed to do. But she certainly did not disappoint me. Yeah, as far as like Warren being on national TV and, you know, delivering her message. Like, if if you were someone who's like, I'm an engaged Democratic voter, but I haven't really been paying attention because there's all these people. Like, I feel like Warren would be one of the, you know, out of the 20, she's probably in your, like, five. They're like, oh, yeah, that person stood out, and I'm going to pay attention to them. And I think how I would sum up, like, her situation is by being on the night she was on, she was able, in my opinion, to kind of, like, be an adult in the room and be clearly like the qualified person there. I'm really surprised no one took a shot at her really that whole night. I, I think it's probably, and other, other people have said this, but they kind of smelt blood in the water with Bega O'Rourke and they were just like, let's just pile on this poor guy. Uh, and I, I think that's probably why she dodged a bullet, but I kind of feel like she was on the wrong stage her to like really define herself because the people that like warren's necessity in the field is highlighted by is really like bernie and biden like those are the two people i feel like she needs to be on stage with because her argument against biden is really clear and i think is a place where she can stand out and then you know she she can contrast bernie significantly by the fact that she is a capitalist and that she does believe in the ba- you know the basic system that we have and just thinks that it requires uh, some tweaking and I-, I think that will be a more interesting debate what i will be curious about is if she will adopt a more forward facing you know kind of combative style that i would say kamala harris did an excellent job of in her debate of sort of like i i i need to distinguish myself from these other candidates and express myself here i wonder if she will be more likely to do that in a debate where uh, she's with those other people. Because I think part of the reason that she disappeared in the latter half of, of the first debate is that, at least in my mind, those are issues that are not necessary to her story of why she's running. They're in her camp. She cares about them, obviously. But, like... She, if she like bugging in in the way that like Bill de Blasio thought he needed to be part of every topic, it would have just felt like really forced and not necessary. So, like, when Kamala had the moment with Joe Biden, like, she picked her moments right. And so, I think a lot of uh, Warren's absence was just her picking her moments. Yeah. And I think in future debates, I mean, she's probably going to want to take her own shots at Biden if you see kind of Warren and Harris rise in this race and Biden falls and it becomes sort of a three-person race between Warren, Harris, and Sanders. You know, Warren's going to want to take some of Sanders' voters, but she's probably going to want to try to undermine Harris a little bit also, um, maybe bringing in some of the criticisms that people on the left have about Harris's record as a prosecutor um, and probably getting after the things that some people on the left say about Harris and the mortgage crisis because that sort of consumer protection angle is sort of Warren's bread and butter. All right, so we're going to leave the debate there, and we are going to come back to the presidential race, I'm sure, uh, pretty much pretty frequently for uh, the rest of the year. I think this really was kind of uh, the kickoff for that race. Uh, But let's transition to these two rulings out of the Supreme Court. So last week, the Supreme Court issued two rulings on high-profile cases that show the relationship between the nuts and bolts of governing and how it impacts our democracy. First, the court temporarily prohibited Trump's Commerce Department from adding a question about citizenship to the 2020 census. And second, the court decided that it has no place in limiting partisan gerrymandering of legislative districts. So both of these rulings have downstream effects on the politics of our state and the politics of other states in the country. Luke, can you just start with this uh, citizenship question ruling and kind of walk us through this opinion that has been described by court watchers as a really fractured opinion from the court? Well, 
fractured opinion is is definitely the way to put it. This is very similar in the fractured nature of the Affordable Care Act cases, if you are familiar with those. There's a lot of different things thrown around, and you have justices making different weird coalitions in different parts of the opinion. The really important part of this case, though, and just getting to the highest level of it, is Section 5 of the opinion, where the majority is formed by the Chief Justice John Roberts and the four liberals saying that the whole argument that the Commerce Department came up with, that like, yeah, man, we're, we're adding the census question because we just love the Voting Rights Act and we just want to make sure it's, you know, it's properly enforced and this is super important. It's just completely pretextual and it it just was not real. Like, this is not a real reason. There are no facts backing up this reason. You guys did not follow the process. And so this is a good case, I think, on a high level to compare to the Muslim ban cases uh, because it sort of illustrates like why it went the way it did. So in the, the Muslim ban cases, it's focused on an area of federal law that Congress has given the president just a ton of power in. And basically there's some hoops you have to jump through to get a ban like this through, but they're not that strenuous on the census question. It's a different story because this is effectively an Administrative Procedures Act case, and that means there's a lot of process you have to follow, there are requirements you have to do, and so this case is a lot like some of the EPA cases and some of the other government agency cases where the Trump administration has had more problems and the court has overturned decisions of the agencies because they're just not following the rules. Like, there's just very plain rules that you gotta do. And, you know, the Trump administration thought they were too good for that. And uh, this is just one of those cases. So, basically, they have to come up with a real reason why they want to add this question if they want to get it on in the future and the question now is one can they find that reason and two do they have enough time to do it all right so those are kind of the basics of the case luke where does this case go from here yeah so i mean it goes back to the lower courts because again they didn't say you can't add a census question you know in this discussion they said you can't add a census question in this way and so I I imagine like the Commerce Department is trying to cook up some other rationale for like why they want a census question, sorry, a citizenship question on the census. And they're going to try to go through the process. But I mean, you know, this administration hasn't been great at that. So, uh, I mean, really, this case is done until the Commerce Department tries to add it again and say we're adding it because reason we just made up on the back of this napkin please accept it and i just don't know if they have enough time to do it uh there i i think it would knowing how this administration has worked i would be very surprised if they don't try again so i'm expecting them to try yet again uh, it's just the question is will they and if they do they're going to run into a lot of problems because some issues that were not considered by the Supreme Court when it came up the first time, like memos from Republican operatives saying that they're doing this because it will help Republicans slash white people and hurt Democrats slash black people and brown people is why we're doing this. That will be more likely to be in part of the, as part of the record. And as Roberts and the liberals say in uh, the decision that came down last week, like, they are not lacking for record <laughs> in this case. Like, this is a case where they have a lot of paperwork already. And I I just think they're going to have a hard time. Now, it's quite possible that just like the uh, Muslim ban case, that the Trump administration will pull this off and they will jump through the proper hoops in the right order and they will dot their I's and, you know, cross their T's and they'll get this done. But time is just against them because as they've mentioned, like they got to print the census, they got to like hire people to go out and do it. And I don't really think that they're going to have the opportunity to delay the census because of this. Like, I, I, I think it's... It, the, the clock is ticking and it's against them. That's the short version. 
So I have a question, and just to kind of preface it for our listeners, I will freely admit that this is not necessarily a political aspect that I am very familiar with. So I, like many of our listeners, are just going to be listening for most of this and asking questions. So one of my own questions... Oh, by the way, listeners, if you have questions about political stuff, feel free to contact us. I'm happy to ask them on your behalf. Um, back to the story. Um, one of my questions is... I have my own opinions about why I think the citizenship question is bad to add to the census, but can perhaps you, Luke, or you, Kyle, give a more concrete reason as to why it's bad? Yeah, so there's sort of like two or three buckets of reasons of of why it would be bad for the census to have a citizenship question. The first and the one that, that census experts uh, discuss most frequently is that Having a citizenship question on the census will lower the response rate among communities of color, predominantly communities with immigrants in them, uh, because this potentially this development of having a citizenship question in the census dovetails with Trump's broader policies on immigration. In recent weeks, he's uh, threatened ICE raids in major cities. uh, And we've talked about his policies on family separation that have created this real chill among immigrants responding to things from the government. So there is just the basic baseline fact that it would make the census less accurate because it would reduce response rates among immigrant communities. Um, another reason that this is a bad idea is that a lot of federal money is uh, allocated based on the numbers that come back in the census. The census is supposed to tell you how many people are in every community, and it's supposed to be the underlying data that helps you distribute that federal money. But the third reason, and maybe the most important reason in this case, is some of, something that Luke alluded to briefly that is going to be subject of a related but separate case at the district level is these files that have been found from a Republican gerrymandering expert. And he argued that adding a citizenship question to the census would give you census block level citizenship data. And that what you could do with that data is you could draw legislative districts based on the total number of citizens rather than the total population in each district. And what that would mean in practice is that immigrants tend to be clustered in communities that are more democratic. So moving the population base essentially numerically from bluer areas with lots of immigrants to more rural areas that have fewer immigrants is a transfer of political power from Democratic areas to Republican areas. Now, it's interesting because the rationale from the government doesn't mention any of those things. They talk about the Voting Rights Act. But a conservative uh, lobbyist, the director of the American Conservative Union, Matt Schlapp, he's also the husband of the White House Director of Strategic Communications, he responded to this ruling by saying, by criticizing Roberts, conservatives have a lot of problems with Roberts, by criticizing him as allowing Democrats to keep the House because of undocumented immigrants. So despite the fact that the government has not bought into this rationale, some conservative commentators are talking about wielding the census and the citizenship question as a political weapon, uh, but saying that Democrats are wielding it because the census is allowed to count undocumented immigrants. When in reality, if you use the citizenship question to do this type of redistricting, it is a opportunity for Republicans to shift political power in their direction uh, because they have this data. Interesting. That last piece is definitely something I did not, I have no knowledge of. So thank you. Yeah, I think this is something that is kind of emerging and it, it gets to this discussion I mean, really, both of these cases will sort of transition into the gerrymandering thing here in a second. But it gets to this discussion of Republicans using the structures of our federal government and our state governments as weapons of partisan warfare. So you could use citizenship data to draw district lines, other ways in which they've sort of radicalized the procedural processes were... McConnell refusing to consider the Garland nomination for the Supreme Court, extreme gerrymanders in North Carolina and Wisconsin that we'll talk about. Um, And then even Republican lawmakers have considered allocating electoral college votes in their state 
by congressional district instead of by, based on the statewide popular vote outcome. Republican lawmakers in Virginia, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin have considered this in recent years. And I think it brings up this question for Democrats of, you know, we're going to get to the court not ruling on partisan gerrymandering, and we've seen this procedural extremism from Republicans in recent years. Should Democrats take a more aggressive approach to these procedural issues in our democracy? Yes, but they should do it by more aggressively turning norms into laws rather than exacerbating the situation because the you know this this is something that's not going to get better before it gets worse and i think doubling down on these bad things rather than fighting them in the proper venues and making a priority out of engraving in law some of the things that were just kind of taken for granted like how you know like how you know when a supreme court nominee is presented how long do you have before you bring them up you know like those types of things you know people just kind of like honor system like yeah man we're gonna do it uh but that that has not been the case in more recent years and so i think rather than trying to beat the republicans at their own game i think this is an opportunity for democrats to not only be seen doing the right thing but like do the right thing and set the table differently so that these abuses can't happen in the future rather than just doing them as well. So let's let's move on to the gerrymandering ruling here because this is also another piece of this puzzle. And Luke, can you just tell us a little bit more about why the court decided not to intervene in partisan gerrymandering? And do you think that that outcome was surprising? So I think this is a really straightforward case. You know, a lot of law can be like really really complicated and hard to understand, but this is, this involves a pretty straightforward concept, I hope, which is the idea of judiciability, which is basically there are some issues that the Supreme Court says, yeah, we just don't do that. That's not what we're here to do. This is not what courts are here to do, and, and we can't do that. So, sorry, you know, nice, nice to see you. Thanks for stopping by, but we can't help you. This decision is not surprising, due to who's on the court now uh for people who really care about election law and who have been watching partisan gerrymandering uh, at the court for a long time it really seemed like that the court was going to get into this because of the fact that justice kennedy was on the court and basically every single time a partisan gerrymander case came up Justice Kennedy would be like, ah, partisan gerrymandering, one of the things in America I hate the most. Please keep bringing these cases to me, but I'm sorry, this test that you've suggested for the Supreme Court to handle this problem, I don't really like it, and I don't think it's going to work, so please come again. Try again. (laughs) And he basically just kept saying that until, you know, for however many years he was on the court, and now he's off the court, and... Uh, you know, that vote in that direction is gone. And so the new conservative majority was like, yeah, we just don't want to deal with this. Thank you. Goodbye. Don't come again. Uh, and I think what's really amazing about this issue compared to a lot of other issues where the court says that, eh, I'm sorry, this is just not judiciable. Like we, you know, we don't like this because that's one thing that's in this decision. This is not an embrace of partisan gerrymandering. This is not Roberts and the conservatives saying, you know what we think is awesome? Partisan gerrymandering. So please keep doing it. Please do it more. It's totally constitutional. We like it. No. Like, I mean, they're, they're pretty much saying that this is a terrible thing. And I think Justice Kagan, who wrote the dissent, really, really just like starts it out perfectly because in her first paragraph, <laughs> she says, for the first time ever, this court refuses to remedy a constitutional violation because it thinks the task is beyond judicial ca- capabilities. And why I think that is the best way to sum this up is two reasons. One, let's get out of partisan gerrymandering for a moment. The court is already kind of doing this with racial gerrymandering. And that's one thing that should be said and really highlighted uh, because this is a bad case for democracy this is a bad case for democrats this is a bad case for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons this is a case that when the history of the roberts court is written it will be a black staying on it 
But this is not the end of fair lines, period. Nothing in this opinion says racial gerrymandering is okay. Go forth and do it. Uh, and that's really important because for states like Georgia and other Southern states where being African-American or Hispanic, you know, for lack of a better term, just like basically equals being a Democrat, like they're not going to be able to like eliminate every black person from a congressional district and be like, but we did it because they're Democrats. Like that will not fly. Like they, they will not be able to do that. And they, and they, will probably try to scream from the mountaintops that we're doing this because we hate Democrats and Democrats are bad and Republicans are good and we're doing this to help Republicans and hurt Democrats. But, like, the court will not ignore if it's very clearly that they just took every black person out of a district or something like that. So that door is still wide open. The court will still rule on those. You know, it's going to be hard, as it always is, but that door is open. So... I thought that the the reaction from House Speaker David Ralston was really interesting in this case. He issued a statement through his spokesperson to the AJC, and he told the AJC that you, quote, you cannot misuse the courts to win political fights you lost at the ballot box. Um, and then he talks about how it was only that Democrats had drawn districts for a long time, and it was only after Democrats lost power that you started to see these spurious gerrymandering claims in courts. Yeah, I don't think that's entirely historically accurate, but the message from Speaker Ralston was clear that leadership's view in the legislature is that the districts will be what the party in power says they will be, and that if you want to change that, you have to win at the ballot box, which is somewhat ironic. This is like a bit of circular reasoning here, because one of the reasons it becomes hard to win at the ballot box is because of the way that the lines are drawn what did you make of the speaker being just so like concrete and clear about that standard? And um, does it, does it matter that Republicans aren't sort of saying, well, you know, we're, we are drawing lines that are fair, you know, Democrats say they're bad, but, but we know that they're fair. They're basically saying we're going to draw them how we want and we don't care. Yeah. So let me start that by answering part two of the last question, because it feeds into this. So the other thing that makes this decision strange and that really angers the liberals on the court and why I think this will be a black stain on the Roberts court and the conservatives is because lower courts were already overturning maps because they were too partisan. Other states have interpreted their constitutions as preventing partisan gerrymandering at a certain point. So there is a standard that the court could use, but this is Roberts just stepping back. And I think we should talk about this at the end. This is a recurring thing with this court. Roberts is trying not to be in the news, and this is his way, he thinks, of doing that. So back to Ralston now. The reason why Ralston put that statement out, I think, is twofold. One, people are not stupid. Like, when they see... They walk outside their door and their neighbor has, you know, the same county commissioner as them, but they have a different state senator, but they have the same state rep, but they have, you know, like a different, you know, school board member. Like they're not stupid. Like people see these maps, they see the congressional maps and they don't make any sense. And the only logic that they can be is because it helps one party and it hurts the other. So I think the calculus here is first, People aren't stupid. And then two, this is a proactive defense against a racial gerrymander. Now, I think that's a weak defense, but I think that's what you're going to see because that's what North Carolina did as soon as they got into this problem. They're just going to scream from the mountaintops like, this is not a racial gerrymander. This is a partisan gerrymander. And the Supreme Court said we can do that. And we're helping the Republican Party and we're hurting the Democratic Party, but we're not affecting race because we don't see race. We only see party. And I, I think that's why he's saying that because... It both of those things work together towards the same goal, which is them upholding these maps in court because they're going to draw ridiculous maps and people are going to challenge them and they have to be prepared for that. And the court has very much so adopted a sniff test at a certain point with some districts. And so going into court being like, yes, 
this new district that we have drawn that connects Valdosta to Athens to Rome is totally normal. And everyone thinks that. Like, no, no, no one's going to buy that. So, um, yeah. So that, I mean, I just don't think they are going to lie in that way because it's just not going to hold up in court. So I think just to kind of wrap up this topic here and, and wrap us up today, this underlines the importance of the 2020 election in Georgia. And this is why I think you're going to see one of the fiercest battles for the Georgia State House that we have seen in quite a long time. Uh, because, you know, whether the standard eventually changes in the court, maybe eventually rules in partisan gerrymandering, they're probably not going to before the redistrict. I mean, Luke, you can disagree with me if you want, but they're probably not going to before the redistricting after the 2020 census. And so Democrats, because they lost the governor's race in 2018, need a, a foot in the door to have some way to influence the redistricting process. And winning the state house would give them that influence. Even if they couldn't win it all the way, but if they could get really close, it does make them make it difficult for them to draw the map uh, because there's just fewer Republicans to protect and fewer Democrats to draw out. Um, but this is why you're going to see, I think, a relatively unprecedented investment in flipping the state house for Democrats this session because this is not only governing in the second half of Kemp's first term and influencing that process, it's political power in the state for the next 10 years. Um, and if Democrats cannot find a way to get their foot in the door, the 2020s are going to be tough for a party that is ready to be back in power. Yeah, the only amendment I'd say is uh, they might change one district or two. They have a tendency to do that when they're afraid about a particular rep. But I, I doubt they're going to redraw the entire maps b before the census. Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about Republicans. And, and uh, yes, and, uh, and yeah, Republicans aren't going to. And I agree with you. Uh, this is a critical election for Democrats. I mean, Georgia is going to be really fun this year. And, you know, as far as if you like a lot of competitive elections, there's going to be a lot. Because 2018, if you are a Democrat in the state of Georgia, you look at 2018 and you say, oh, I should probably run. <laughs> because there's a lot of successes that we had as a party on the state house level. And while the numbers are incredibly difficult, they're doable. I mean, it's possible. And, you know, some of the candidates that lost last time are going to run again, and maybe they'll do better. And maybe, you know, they learned enough to win this time. Plus, you know, we don't really know who the presidential candidate's going to be. They could be someone who thinks Georgia's part of their calculus, and that's how they win. We're going to have a very active Senate race this year. And I, I just, I think there's going to be a lot of energy and a lot of excitement in Georgia, and I think it's going to be a really fun time to uh, do this show. So I'm looking forward to it because the stakes are really high. And I think, you know, they're, they're higher than, than last cycle for, for sure, which is kind of crazy to think about. All right. Well, I think that is a good reminder. I think we're ending the same place this week that we ended last week, which is a reminder to not only care about who is running for president, but to care about your state and local elections as well. Although you're listening to us, so you probably do. Um, but with that, we are going to leave it there for the week. Uh, so, Luke, thank you as always. Thank you, Kyle. And Megan, thank you for joining the pod. Thank you. It was very educational. All right, guys. We'll talk to you all next week. Later. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.